That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. And how you doing out there, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of This Show is All About You. Thanks for taking the next hour to spend with me, whether you are listening live here on Kixie 880 in Seattle or you are listening as a podcast. Thank you so much for doing it. And remember, if you miss any of this episode or any of my other episodes, you can find This Show is All About You as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find out more about me, if you're interested, at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, Just look up W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You'll find me pretty quickly. I'd love to chat with you, connect with you, see what is on your mind. So uh, thank you for coming in. Thanks also to this show's longtime sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers, of which there are hundreds But they also focus on helping students better connect with themselves, their own sense of self-advocacy, their own sense of agency in their lives, all with the point of not only helping them find a successful career, but better connect within themselves, within their families, and within their communities. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does and how you can help them in their mission, please check out their newly revamped website at airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org. You'll also hear more about them during the break. Uh, I am really excited for today's episode, uh, in part probably because I'm probably a little over-caffeinated at this point of the day, but it's a little necessary because I'm a bit underslept. Is that a word? <laughs> I think it might be. But nevertheless, I also think I have a, I have a story that uh, I know is very interesting for me and hopefully will be interesting for all of you uh, from a very human level and from a history level. But before we do that, let's start the way we always start the show by taking a look at some important points in the last week's news in a segment I call, What in the World? is going on. How damaging are these leaks? We don't see any serious danger of this leak uh, in topic of our nearest, in our nearest future offensive operation. Uh, So I can say, don't worry about this. You spoke to your American counterparts about this. We have spoken. And you're investigating? We investigated. United States, as I know, investigated. Of course, that is the uh, head of Ukraine's military intelligence branch uh, in an interview saying uh, Ukraine is not that worried about the, uh, the documents leak that happened on the Discord gaming platform last week, for which, between last week's show and this week's show, a 21-year-old uh, Air National Guardsman named John Texero was arrested for posting these on Discord. Uh, about those documents that had a lot of seemingly accurate intel from the point of view of the United States about how things were going in Ukraine, including some things like they're maybe running out of missiles, uh, air defense missiles faster than anybody thought, that they're going through ammunition faster than anybody thought, and there's concerns that they may not be able to make up the shortfall of those weapons in time 
for this big spring offensive that Ukraine uh, keeps talking about that they're prepared for. There are other embarrassing things in there for the United States. Clearly, the United States is really well connected within the South Korean South Korean government in the in the Israeli Mossad, their secret service, uh, and uh, and also seemingly have a lot of contacts within Russia. Uh, and by this meaning, they're listening in on a lot of conversations and intercepting a lot of communications. That may or may not be a real problem for the United States. Uh, Russia tends to believe a lot of these things when they come out are false flag operations. The United States trying to scare them. Who knows? Uh, but it is certainly more than more than anything else. Uh, an embarrassing moment for the United States, not necessarily for all the reasons we've been talking about. Nobody should be shocked that intelligence agencies, even among allied nations, are spying on one another. No one should be surprised by this. That is just the standard operating procedure. And so a lot of the tis- tisking and the uh, you know hand wringing you hear about that is honestly from government agencies. A lot of that is for show. What is more, I think, of a problem here is who's doing the hiring for <laughs> who gets to be looking at top secret documents, maybe it's not the best idea to have enlisted 21-year-olds who are really into gaming and are spending a lot of time on platforms throwing around a lot of weird ideas. Maybe that isn't the best, aren't the best people to have in positions where um, really, really important intelligence information is changing hands. It looks like this young man, Teixeira, was trying to impress his buddies and put this out there. It doesn't look like any, any sort of ideological background or any ideological intent, I should say, behind this. But nevertheless, what's out there is a problem. Um, it's not the biggest thing in the world. It's certainly not like the WikiLeaks uh, uh, incidents from about 10 years ago or like the Pentagon Papers in 1971. But nevertheless, anything like this is always concerning and adds unnecessary strain to a series of important relationships that have to maintain their strength and cohesion if Ukraine wants to survive this war against Russia. Meanwhile, in another part of the world... There's some rough things going on, too, we should probably know about. Tonight, the East African nation of Sudan smoldering in chaos. A deadly coup killing at least 25 and injuring hundreds, the Sudanese doctors' union telling Reuters. The country's paramilitary rapid support services taking to Twitter, claiming control of the army's headquarters, public radio and television, and air navigation throughout the country. It also announced a manhunt for the army's commander. The battles leaving smoke billowing from commercial planes at the capital city's airport. Inside, people fell to the floor trying to take cover as shots erupted on the streets. Once again, for the umpteenth time, a bunch of civilians caught in the middle of a power struggle, this time in Khartoum, the capital city of Sudan, uh, in the heart of Africa. Uh, Predominantly Muslim uh, country, but one just a handful of years ago, divided into two parts, southern Sudan uh, is is its own country now. But back in 2019, there was a lot of optimism because there was a popular overthrow of the longstanding strongman leader in that country with the promise of moving towards a uh, a democratic Sudan. then a couple of years after that, the military took over <laughs> to supposedly run that process more smoothly and make sure it actually happened. Long story short, the two highest ranking military officials who are helping run the country, their factions have decided to go to war with one another over who is going to lead this process going forward or who is just simply going to seize power for themselves. Nobody knows what is actually happening. Nobody really knows. Um, what the true roots of this are. What is known is that this is not a good part of the world to have this going on in. 
Once upon a time, Sudan was one of the biggest hideouts for large terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and others before Saudi Arabia, before Afghanistan. And there's certainly no desire to see a country, a large country in the heart of Africa, descend into civil war yet again. Uh, lots of people tend to get killed in that part of the world when these things happen. It's worth keeping an eye on. As of right now, at least 100 to 150 uh, innocent bystanders have been killed so far. Um, but it could very well get worse uh, before it gets better. So it's worth keeping an eye on that. Okay. A couple of other things I wanted to follow up just really quickly verbally on a couple of things that I think are worth noting. Last week, I talked about the so-called Tennessee Three, uh, the three state legislators who were uh, summarily expelled from the Tennessee state legislature for violating the decorum of the legislative building when they supported protests by students and others um, f protesting for gun control in the aftermath of the Covenant Christian School shooting a couple weeks ago. Well, literally the next day after last week's show, those legislators were reinstated by their city councils in Memphis, Nashville, respectively. And so both of those legislators are back in. And so essentially what was an act of political retribution and really a political stunt by the, uh, the supermajority Republican uh, dominated uh, elements of the legislature has now essentially made these two legislators who they clearly didn't like for lots of different reasons, has now made them national celebrities <laughs> and given a great deal of voice to them and really cast a lot of the problems in state governments in Tennessee, as well as in the rest of the South, into a very harsh light. So, you know, not sure what they were shooting for there, but I don't think it was this. Second thing, um, for a long time on this show, I covered the uh, protests going on in Iran. And you might have noticed I haven't talked about them very much. And I wanted to bring it back around really quick. We're about seven months out since those protests started. Uh, they were really against the morality police, uh, but became something much larger than that. There are still protests going on in Iran uh, pretty much every day. They're not nearly as widespread as before. But I wanted everybody to be aware of that in, the, in this little quiet time or this, this, this whatever we want to call it, uh, the parliament of Iran has instituted a new uh, hijab law, which is what started all of this, the headscarves that women are forced to wear there. Uh, that women who are not wearing it correctly can now be fined the, the equal of 60,000 American dollars uh, for doing that. And there are women who are openly defying that and there are being arrested. So hard to know if that will explode into a new round of widespread protests. But certainly uh, the tension is still going on and uh, a lot of Iranians, young people have been arrested or otherwise uh, threatened into submission. But nevertheless, that's what's happening there. And finally, in some news that I think is much bigger than people are making it out to be, and it's just kind of slid under all the other crazy news going on right now, last week, India surpassed China as the world's most populous nation, ending China's status as the most populous nation that goes back almost 300 years. So that takes us to roughly the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, <laughs> okay, going back that far. This is a significant change, and according to uh, a lot of organizations that track these types of things, growth rates and decline rates. By the end of the 21st century at current rates, India not only will be the largest, continue to be the largest population in the world, but will be double the population size of China. China's uh, population growth rate is really slowing down. Their population is, is getting older, which means state-provided pensions are having to be paid out, fewer people um, in the workforce. These are serious demographic issues for both countries. Right. Because as India gets bigger and bigger, this parliamentary democracy, which seems to waffle back and forth between being democratic and authoritarian, is going to have to find a little bit more stability. 
And the internal infrastructure of that company is going to have, or that country is going to have to continue to modernize if they want to continue to grow uh, and have this not be a population explosion followed by a collapse. So there's a lot going on there, and the ramifications of that for the rest of the world, I think, are pretty stark. So it's worth noting that that happened this week and barely anybody noticed. Okay, so that's the news uh, for this week. Now, let's jump into this week's story. Um, and it, you know, it's funny, the stories that I choose every week, I never know really where they're going to come from. Sometimes there's something that came up in the course of conversations or I was just reflecting on something or from a book I was reading or from something I was watching, a conversation I've had with a family member or a friend. In this case, uh, it happened to do with an anniversary, uh, the, the history side of me. An anniversary that will be tomorrow, as a matter of fact, from this recording, so April 18th. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But this story is, involves three people, me, but I'm at the very tail end of this. Okay. But the two most important people are two men who were and always considered themselves to be just very normal people who happened to live in what most of us would call extraordinary times or through extraordinary times and lived remarkable lives uh, all the way through, sometimes remarkable for what they witnessed and what they experienced and what they participated in, but then also remarkable for <laughs> How really, as their lives played out, a lot of what we would consider to be very normal things continued to happen. There are two what you could call parallel lives of men who did not meet each other until much later in their lives, but were really, in a lot of ways, very similar and were involved in one of the more remarkable events of the 20th century. I'm not just talking about World War II. It happens during World War II, but a very important event in World War II. And so I'm going to tell their two stories. I'm going to put them side by side and kind of interact as we go. And these two men, their names are Ed Saylor, one of them, and the other is a man named Moon Fun Chin. Let's start with Moon Fun Chin. On April 13th, 1913, Moon Fun Chin was born just west of Macau in China. And a few years after he was born, Chin's father moved Chin and the family first to Seattle, where I am sitting right now. But a few years after being in the Seattle area, moved the family to Baltimore, Maryland, where Moon Fun Chin grew up, became an American citizen, went to school, and became very interested in aviation, really interested in aviation. Everything about it, learning how planes flew, learning how engines worked, Every single thing about flight fascinated Moon Fun Chin from a very, very young age. And he said many years later that he doesn't remember a time where he didn't love aviation. And this was something that was really important to him. So by the time he was seven years old, Moon Fun Chin, he had no memory of China at the time. And so he grew up and he, lear he learned English, learned English fluently. And by the time he was just a young boy, seven years old, was set in in Baltimore for what you could call, I guess, a quintessential standard American upbringing, but just being from China instead. When he was seven years old, around the same time, in 1920, in rural Montana, Ed Saylor was born to his cattle rancher parents. And 
he did not see this, how rural he was, where he was. Uh, Ed Saylor did not see a train or a bus in his life until 1939. So 19 years of his life. In fact, the first mechanized anything that he ever saw besides the occasional car or lorry on a dirt road was an airplane. And like Moon Fun Chin, Ed Saylor was immediately taken by aviation when he saw a plane fly over his head as a young boy. And he decided he really wanted to know all the secrets of flight. And so he dedicated himself to learning everything he could about aircraft engines, how they were designed, how they ran, how you could repair them, you name it. He wanted to know all of that. Right? So these two young boys growing up very far apart, right? one from an entirely different country, but many states apart, growing up with a similar love of aviation in a time period in the 1930s in the United States, um, the 20s and 30s, that was going to be quite volatile for a lot of different reasons. Fast forward to 1933. Moon Fun Chin, after graduating from high school, decided he wanted to become a pilot. And so he went to the Curtis Wright um, Flight School and learned how to become a pilot and worked his way all the way through to get his commercial license. So he got his private's license. He went through every single step, instrument rating, everything the pilots need to do, and he became a commercial pilot prior to 1933. So at about the age of 20 years old, his uncle said to him, you know, I have some friends who run, help run an airline in China, back in China where Moon Fun Chin was from. It was called the CNAC, the Chinese National Aviation Corporation. It is considered China's and maybe even Asia's first airline, although it did more than just what standard airlines do. It didn't just take passengers. It also took freight, you know, that type of thing. But he said, why don't you consider going back there? Part of the unspoken thing was it might be easier for Moon Chin with his background to fly in China than it would be to fly in the United States for an airline. So 1933, despite having very little memory, if any, of China, Moon Chin flew all the way back across the Pacific and began to fly for the CNAC. Four years later, Imperial Japan invaded China outright. A lot of people consider that to be the true beginning of the Second World War. But Moon Chin was caught flying aircraft in the middle of a war zone starting in 1937. When we come back from the break... What I'm going to do is I'm going to start bringing these two stories a little bit more together. And if you're wondering where I fit into this, don't worry. We'll get to that. But when we come back on this show is all about you, you'll hear more about these two remarkable individual lives and the parallel courses that they ran on. Stick around. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Telling the story, two parallel lives in history. Ed Saylor from Montana, Moon Fun Chin 
from Baltimore, Maryland, by way of Macau, China, as a young man, as a young boy. And right before the break, where I left off, Moon Fun Chin had returned to China to fly for the CNAC. And four years after he arrived in 1937, Imperial Japan attacked China. And Imperial Japan's invasion of China was, um, wasn't just what you would call a standard military invasion. It came at the time of a longstanding civil war between the Chinese nationalist-dominated government, of which helped run the CNAC, and the Chinese communists, led by Mao Zedong, who eventually would unify all of China after World War II into communist China. So there was a civil war going on. The Japanese had occupied the northern part of the country in Manchuria since 1931. And in 1937, they dispensed with the, with the charade that they were there just simply to benefit China and decided to try and um, invade and conquer China outright. And the thoroughness and the brutality of the Japanese invasion has been documented by many. And Moonshin was having to fly within that. And to say that was dangerous uh, is an understatement. First of all, when you're flying around in passenger planes, uh, DC-3s and the like, uh, you are easy prey for military fighters. And the Japanese had some of the best military fighters in the world at the time. And so there was a lot of dodging of military aircraft in Moonshin's career, a lot of aborted missions, a lot of dangerous flying at low levels, sometimes, you know, evading uh, fighter planes by ducking into clouds or into storms, you know, that type of thing. So Moonshin became, in this period, beginning 1937, a very, very skilled, experienced pilot who had seen a lot of stuff, right? So this is going on in 1937, the maelstrom of all that. A couple years later, back in the States, Ed Saylor, with his love of aviation and his, his obsession with learning about how engines worked and wanted to repair them, in 1939, two years after the Japanese invasion of China, he joined the Army Air Corps. So he joined the military, and he wanted to work in aircraft, um, aircraft uh, maintenance. So that's what he did. So he was repairing engines on various types of planes. So these two men in two very different places continue on this path as the world moves closer and closer to war. In, of course, December 7th, 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, bringing the United States into World War II. Not long after that, Ed Saylor, by this point a sergeant in the Army Air Corps, uh, heard about a, an invitation from a man named Jimmy Doolittle, who was lieutenant colonel at the time. Jimmy Doolittle was a nationally known name in the United States. He was maybe the best pilot in the world at the time. He certainly considered himself to be the best pilot in the world at the time. But he was an accomplished pilot. He'd won a lot of different air races. Air races were really popular in the 1930s. And he was so popular that even in, uh, in the 1930s, in 1933 and 34, Doolittle had been actually over in China and Moon Chin had seen him fly acrobatics. And, that, and Moon Chin had known his name and learned his name just by seeing him fly in China. Well, Doolittle by this point was in the, uh, the Army Air Corps. And you probably know where this is going if you know any of this about history. The offer went out that Doolittle needed people to volunteer for what was going to be a very daring mission, perhaps a one-way mission, to bring the war that Japan had started, to bring the war to Japan in an audacious way that would at least, if nothing else, boost American morale. This was in early 1942. And Ed Saylor signed up for this. And in April of 1942, uh, Doolittle, Sailor, and the crews of 16 
B-25 Mitchell planes, medium bombers, army bombers. They were put onto the, U- the aircraft carrier, the USS Hornet, which is designed for smaller planes. <laughs> they put these 16 planes on the flight deck of the Hornet and secretly sailed it out into the Pacific with these army pilots and crews on board. Doolittle leading the whole thing, sailor just one of many on these crews, to sail out and to sail, the plan was to sail within 400 miles of Japan, launch these planes that could not land because they weren't designed to land on an aircraft carrier. They were going to go one way. They were going to drop bombs on Japan, on Tokyo, Kobe, Yokohama, other small cities, and then fly over the rest of Japan, over the Sea of Japan, and either ditch, crash land, or land safely in China, and just cross their fingers and hope that local Chinese and contacts that they had there would help these pilots evade the Japanese army that was rampaging all over the country. The idea was to let the Japanese know that the United States had not been defeated outright, either militarily or morale-wise, by the attack on Pearl Harbor. So they trained all in early 1942 for this. And on the night of April 17th, which is 81 years ago today, as of this recording, they were preparing to fly overnight, take off at night, and bomb Japan at first light on the 18th. That was the idea. Now, on the way, uh, Ed Saylor, who was in charge of one aircraft's uh, engines, noticed that there was a real problem with one of the engines on the plane that he was going to be flying. And so Doolittle told him, you need to get that repaired (laughs) before we take off. So in the midst of these roiling stormy seas, which at this time of year in the northern Pacific, it is very stormy out there, Ed Saylor was working in the rain, taking apart one of the engines, of the two engines of this B-25, trying not to drop any of these uh, parts because they might roll right off the flight deck into the, into the ocean and never see them again. So he would take them out, put them inside the airplane as the thing is pitching and rolling on the flight deck in the rain to keep from losing them. And he said later on that by the time he was done rebuilding the engine, he said, I, I didn't have any extra parts in my hands, but I couldn't guarantee that they were all in the right place. <laughs> Well, he was going to find out one way or the other the next day. And, and instead of getting within 400 miles of the coast, the Doolittle Raiders, as they came to be known, Doolittle Raiders had to launch 200 miles sooner than planned. A, uh, a Japanese surveillance ship tracked the Hornet and picked up on it. And the concern was that it was going to radio back to Tokyo, let them know there was an American aircraft carrier out there somewhere where it shouldn't have been, and that might be a problem. And so Doolittle said, we just got to go now. And the problem with that is that 200 miles sooner means fewer planes were actually going to make it to the Chinese mainland. More of these crews, their pilots, the bombardiers, the navigators, engine, uh, engine repair and gunners, they did two jobs, would all be going into the ocean or would be lucky to make the coastline. Ed Saylor said later in life that he didn't, he didn't expect to survive the mission. None of them did. As he said, you can't expect to bomb the, the Japanese capital or the Japanese homeland in broad daylight and get away with it. So with all that in mind, these 16 planes took off 200 miles sooner than they wanted to um, into the early light of the day on April 18th, 1942. And they flew at very low levels until they reached the Japanese coastline several hours later. The movie with Spencer Tracy, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, tells this story. But nevertheless, Sailor's plane 
ended up dropping uh, bombs on a factory in Kobe. So not on the capital of Tokyo. Doolittle focused on getting to the capital and bombs were dropped. And these bombs didn't do a ton of damage in terms of material damage. They certainly didn't slow down the Japanese war machine. But the bombs did surprise Japan entirely. Japan, since Pearl Harbor, four, four months earlier, had been rampaging across the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, conquering a lot of American-held territories, sinking a big portion of the British Pacific fleet, and conquering the Philippines. I mean, it had been a disastrous first few months for the United States and its allies in the Pacific. And Japan was in the process of building a gigantic empire uh, as part of its effort in the war. And so when these bombs dropped, it surprised the Japanese to a very high extent. In fact, none of the planes that flew over Japan were actually shot at by aircraft or anti-aircraft uh, guns or anything like that. They just simply could not believe this had actually happened. And so the Doolittle Raiders dropped their bombs, raced over the rest of, of continental Japan, and over the Sea of Japan on the way to the Chinese coast. In some spots, it was pretty stormy uh, for some of the pilots to land, which, which in some ways was good, some ways was bad. Flying into storms means the Japanese can't follow you. It also means you can't see where you're going and you're not sure if you're over water, uh, if you're over land. And if you are over land, it's going to be pretty much impossible for you to find a place to land that is actually an airfield, which was going to be hard to do anyway. And below you on land, of course, as far as you know, if you're one of these dual little raiders, you're going to land right in the middle of either not imperial Japanese held territory or among a whole bunch of Japanese troops. And the reputation of Japan's troops on how they treated prisoners of war was already well known. None of these Doolittle Raiders wanted to be captured for that reason. So Doolittle, and this is important for the story, Doolittle would end up bailing out in the middle of a storm and would land near the coastline with his crew and would immediately be taken in by uh, Chinese partisans who were fighting against uh, the Japanese and he was hidden and was being taken to some rendezvous points where ideally he could be flown out. And the idea was anybody who could get to these rendezvous points could be flown out of China over the Himalayas into India. That was the goal. Ed Saylor's plane, meanwhile, ran out of fuel before it could reach the coastline and ditched into the water just short of the coastline. And they swam for a while and were saved by a, a bunch of, of Chinese locals right on the beach who came out in small boats, pulled them in, kept them, kept them hidden on a small island for a short period of time. Because, of course, the Japanese were looking for them by this point. Word got out to the Japanese military in China that the United States had bombed Japan, which was quite an affront and quite a shock. And so these pilots were, were public enemy number one as far as the Japanese were concerned. And so these Chinese nationals helping them were, of course, risking their own lives because if they were caught with these pilots, they themselves were going to be tortured and executed. In the end, uh, uh, several of the Doolittle Raiders were captured. Uh, several were executed by the Japanese. One died of malnutrition. A couple of planes ended up in the Soviet Union, which borders right on that part of China, and they were interred for the duration of the war. But Sailor and Doolittle were among those who actually escaped into the Chinese interior. And then their stories got very interesting. The same group of, of local Chinese who were helping Sailor and others, Sailor remembered in particular a, about a 14-year-old boy who was really doing a lot of the work to go out ahead to see if the next place they were going to go and hide 
was safe, if there were troops nearby. And Sailor and the rest of his crew who worked with this kid, they kind of took him under, his, under their wing and really developed an affection for him. And they were hiding out in places like Buddhist temples, um, in inside huts, you know, underneath uh, rotted mats and hay and, and farms, you know, you name it. Steadily moving somewhere where they could be flown out okay, of the country. Meanwhile, as this was going on, Doolittle was being moved uh, steadily closer and closer to an airfield where he could be flown out. And when Doolittle arrived at an airfield, he came upon a CNAC aircraft, a DC-3, and a young pilot who had just found out earlier that day that he needed to go to this airfield and fly this person out that he was going to meet there. And, of course, you know who it is. It's Moon Fun Chin. Moon Fun Chin was going to be the pilot who was going to fly Jimmy Doolittle to safety. And when he got there, he didn't, re he didn't recognize Doolittle at first until, he said later, until he read Doolittle's nameplate on his jacket. And then he realized, this is Jimmy Doolittle, the guy I saw flying stunts <laughs> in southern China a few years ago, the legendary pilot. And Moon Chin was excited about this. He had not yet heard about the Doolittle raid. He didn't know that had actually happened. But he knew enough to know an American pilot in China, particularly in Japanese-occupied China, needed to get out of there. And so, hopping on this DC-3, uh, Moon Chin was going to essentially ferry hop Doolittle all the way to Calcutta, India. Today it's called Mumbai. The idea was gonna, they were going to do that. So they took off central China, and about an hour or two into this long flight, for this first leg that was going to land in Burma. He got word of a number of Japanese planes in the area. Having had skill in doing this before, Moon Chin told Doolittle, we got to put this plane on the ground. And so Moon Chin promptly landed it on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere <laughs> to give it time for the Japanese, Japanese planes to not find them in the sky, the most importantly. Uh, but hopefully they could land, disguise the plane on the ground, and give time for those planes to pass on. So they did. And so Moonshin lands and he and Doolittle and some other people who were on the plane disguised the plane on the ground. And sure enough, they weren't discovered. After some time on the ground, they took off again and flew through the night. And Moonshin, in just, you know, what already sounds dangerous enough, but considering the time period we're talking about and considering the dangerous conditions, decided they were going to fly the, over the, uh, the Himalayas at night. <laughs> to get too little out. So over the Himalayas at night, everybody, because that's always, that's always safe. But nevertheless, that was the idea. And Moon Shin, skillfully knowing these routes and knowing how to do this well and being a great pilot, managed to do this. And they landed in Burma. So now, Burma, also under attack by Japanese forces at the time. So they were not safe yet. Okay? And so they landed, but in this small little town, in Burma, there were a number of refugees fleeing the Japanese military forces in Burma. And so Moon Chin, being Moon Chin, said, let's put all these people on this plane. Now, a DC-3 standard complement can hold mm, probably roughly 30 people or so, 35, depending on, you're going to pack them in. There were about 75 people that were desperate to get out. And Moon Chin said, yeah, we can do it. 
<laughs> now, later in his life, Doolittle talked about this and said the crazy thing about this was two things. One, there was a there was a telephone wire running across the road, which could very well have, you know, strung up the plane on takeoff. But second, we were going to be taking off at double the amount of weight. He Moon Shin not only put people into the passenger section of this DC-3, the CNA DC-3, but he packed them into the cargo hold as well. And Doolittle, who was sitting up front as a pilot, right, he could help fly the plane, sitting up front remembers Moon Shin climbing into the back door of the DC-3 and literally climbing over people to get to the cockpit. <laughs> and he jumped in the cockpit and somehow had to not only take off this plane without hitting this telephone wire, okay, but the landing strip was on a cliff. And you had to take off the end of the cliff and hopefully have enough speed and not so much weight that the plane wouldn't just plummet into the ground after taking, taking off and hit the bottom of whatever was on the other side of the cliff. Doolittle said it was the single best piece of flying he had ever seen in his life. Moonshin took off the plane off the edge of this cliff, didn't hit the telephone wires, and the plane didn't just plummet to the ground on the other side. He had the perfect amount of speed on takeoff, perfect amount of thrust still yet to go once he put the plane into the air, and he got the plane up into the air and all the way to Calcutta. Upon arriving in Calcutta, which was controlled by the British at the time, Doolittle checked in with the British and said, Hi, I'm Jimmy Doolittle. <laughs> and I bombed Japan, and here I am. Now, this took a little while. This wasn't like the next day or anything like that, but it, it took a little while for this to, to all develop. You're probably wondering, where is Ed Saylor at this point? Well, I'm only going to leave you in suspense for about a minute. Come on back after our next break, and you'll find out what happened to Ed Saylor. Um, and then some other interesting pieces about this story here on this show is all about you. Come on back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You, telling a story of two men involved in uh, different ways in the famous Doolittle raid on Japan in early in World War II. In fact, the 81st anniversary of it is tomorrow, as of, th of this recording, uh, April 18th, 1942. And I already told the story of how Moon Chin uh, helped get Jimmy Doolittle, the famous pilot, maybe the most famous pilot in the United States and one of the best in the world, um, away from the clutches of the Japanese military, flew him over the Himalayas, uh, and then flew an overstuffed DC-3 full of refugees and Doolittle 
um, the rest of the way to, Cal- to safety in Calcutta, India. Sailor had a longer trip than that. Sailor spent several months, mostly by foot, occasionally being able to get some, some rough transportation uh, with the support of a number of friendly Chinese who were helping them evade the Japanese military. Steadily moved his way uh, into China. And uh, this is where I think the best thing to do is to bring myself into the story at this point. Okay. Even though <laughs> I was many years removed from this. Fast forward, you know, so have in mind Ed Saylor moving his way through the interior of China, scared the entire way, evading the Japanese military, unsure, first of all, if he's even going to survive this. And of course, a family back in the States, as with all the Doolittle Raiders, who had no idea where they were, didn't know that they were part of this raid. All of this was top secret. So all their families, including Sailor's wife, had no idea where they were, if they were safe, had no part, they didn't even know they were part of the raid. So with all that in mind, imagine what that must have been like for Ed Saylor. With all that, let's fast forward all the way up to 2014. In 2014, I was working here in Seattle at the Museum of Flight. And one of the parts of my job was I got to bring in people who were legends in aviation, significant people in aviation to do public programs for the public. And because Museum of Flight is a very sizable, impressive museum, could get some pretty big names in there. And I, for a historian by training by me, this was absolutely fantastic. I had studied history academically, got a PhD in it, had gone around the world to dig around in, in archives and, and read uh, the documents from some pretty famous people. Uh, but I didn't always get to meet a lot of individuals who fought in World War II. So part of my job at the Museum of Flight was to bring these people in and to help facilitate these events. Well, in 2014, the Museum of Flight was the location for a commemorative event for, by then, the surviving Doolittle Raiders. By that point in 2014, there were only three of them left out of original complement of dozens upon dozens. Jimmy Doolittle himself died in 1993. But Ed Saylor was one of three remaining at the time. And he lived in Enumclaw, Washington, a somewhat close to Seattle, about an hour or so outside of Seattle. But I volunteered to go pick him up and bring him to this event. I thought, wow, what an opportunity to meet somebody who was on the Doolittle Raid and somebody, you know, and maybe I can, you know, maintain this conversation with him. I, I've studied the war. What can I do with it? So I got to drive out there. We drove out to this really lovely property, a kind of farmish, you know, out in the country. And uh, his daughter was there and I got there to pick him up and he was all ready to go. And uh, before we got in the car, he showed me um, some stained glass. He became a, a stained glass uh, creator and aficionado. After spending a career in the military after the war, all the way retiring as a lieutenant colonel, he'd, uh, he'd been involved in real estate. He'd done a whole bunch of other things. He made a good life for himself. His wife of 60 plus years had passed away in 2011. And as we climbed into the car and he was telling me about himself a little bit and I was getting the specifics of, of his time in, with the Doolittle Raiders down, uh, he shared a lot about his life with me. He talked about his kids, talked about his stained glass making, and he talked about how much, you know, someday he, he'd lived a full life and he was looking forward to seeing his wife again you know, when he passed away. And so we we're driving to the Museum of Flight and I asked him, I said, so, you know, what was it like, you know, getting out, if you don't mind me asking? And 
he didn't tell me the whole story. He, he, had a, he had sometimes he didn't want to share a whole lot of details, but he shared a couple things. One, that young boy I mentioned that they all uh, really took a, fo- took a fondness to. These guys who this kid helped get out, they all wanted after the war to go back to China and find him and maybe bring him to the States. They were never able to. He just disappeared without a trace as, you know, not really that much of a surprise in the, the maelstrom of wartime China. He talked about that, but then he talked about when he did get to across the Himalayas, combination of foot and eventually airplane, uh, but he didn't get specific on, on how he did that. When he got to India, he checked in, of course, with the British and the American embassies, wherever he was, the American consulates, um, obviously did a awards thing for him, right? Commemoration, they got their, they got uh, badges, they got all these awards for what they had done. And <laughs> he told the craziest story. Because I said, how did your family find out that you were okay? He said, actually, this is the interesting thing. He said, of course, they had no idea where we were, as I mentioned before the break. And so this is what happened. He said, I remember getting the medals for things, you know, for, for our participation. And I remember there being cameras there filming this for the newsreels. So unbeknownst to me, back in the Seattle area where he had settled with his wife, said my wife one day went with a friend to the movies. And back then at the movies, before they started, they showed newsreels. That's where people got the information on the news. Television wasn't around yet. And so people would go to cinemas, sometimes just for the news, but certainly if they were going to see a movie, they were going to see the latest newsreels before that. And he said, so my wife, who has no idea where I'm at, hasn't heard from me, doesn't know I've been part of this raid. Uh, she's sitting there waiting for this movie to start. This newsreel comes up and there she sees me on the newsreel, <laughs> getting a medal for being a part of this Doolittle raid, which was a huge shot in the arm to the morale of the United States at a crucial time. And this was months after the raid. I don't remember exactly when he said it was, but it was months after the raid. And that's how his wife found out about this. Right. So two men who didn't know each other, similar paths, taking them to similar places across literally from the United States, across the Pacific, part of one of the major events of World War II, certainly one of the most daring events of World War II, um, across Imperial occupied, Imperial Japanese occupied China, over the Himalayas to safety in India. Sailor eventually was brought back to the United States and was considered a hero for a very long time. Of course, it took a long time um, for these stories to become really much bigger after the war. It was big at the time, but it wasn't until the big greatest generation stuff of the 1990s that these stories began to really draw a lot of attention to people other than just the biggest aviation history enthusiasts out there. Moon Chin, for his part, didn't stay in India long after he dropped off uh, uh, Jimmy Doolittle. He flew back to China and continued to fly for the CNAC all the way through the Second World War, managing to keep himself alive. And even flew rescue missions um, in the 1950s in the South China Sea. There are stories of him rescuing uh, people who were trying to resupply French troops in uh, Vietnam during the French Indochina War. And eventually, Moon Chin also moved back to the United States, married with a married woman who was, he was married to for years. And so when I met Ed Saylor, um, I heard all this story. He did the event, and I got to drive him home. And... I really appreciated the man and the stories he told, his perspective, 
Uh, he was not comfortable with the idea of the greatest generation being called that. He said it was just simply a job. It's what we had to do. And somebody had to do it, and I wanted to volunteer to do it. And so I did. Interesting thing was, that same year, Moon Chin came to the Museum of Flight for an event. And I got to meet him as well. I had never heard of him before I met him. And it was quite the story. I remember bringing him in for an event. And as everybody else was learning his story for the first time, I was learning it for the first time. And he was essentially the first American pilot to fly, certainly first American Chinese pilot, to fly in China for the first Chinese airline. Pretty big deal. He actually ended up starting an airline in Taiwan, which eventually became TransAsia Airlines. And he retired from that, moved back to the States. He's, and this is the crazy thing, everybody. <laughs> Last Friday, April 13th, 2023, Moon Fun Chin turned 110. He's still alive. <laughs> still alive. Ed Saylor passed away about a year or so after I met him in January of 2015 in Sumner, Washington, not far from where I'm sitting. And both men, in this case, I found absolutely fascinating because they had a lot, certainly a lot in common. Their love of aviation, their dedication to service, their bravery to fly early on in World War II, and in Moon Chin's case, to fly all the way through the war at a time when the Japanese control of the air in that part of the world was absolutely insurmountable. It would be a long time before uh, Japan would be defeated, of course, in 1945. It took four years, almost four years, for Japan to be defeated after Pearl Harbor. And, and yet, they went about their business because it was what they needed to do. Neither man considered themselves to be a hero or wanted to be seen as such. They enjoyed telling their stories because of the comrades they flew with, the importance of the time in which they lived, the lessons that they could hand down to younger generations if they were willing to hear them. And for both men, their experiences reminded them, and they talked about it a lot, of the things that really mattered in life. Peace, connection, family, friends, freedom, all the things that, for the most part, all of us agree are really important. That's the thing that was remarkable. They were remarkable for their achievements, yes, but they were also remarkable for the lives they built after this incredibly intense period of their lives. Their perspective on what mattered and what didn't is really what stood out to me when I met them. And I'm, I'm, it's some of my favorite memories were meeting those guys and getting a chance to talk with them. Ed Saylor was very calm, always had a lot of, uh, always had kind of a reflective look, considered everything before he spoke. Um, I don't remember a time where Moon Fun Chin wasn't smiling the entire time I talked with him and he talked with others. And uh, he was just a magnetic personality that way. And so, yeah, he's still alive, 110 years old. And I, I just found that out today. <laughs> I looked him up, see, you know, where, what happened with him? He is still alive. Uh, it is, it's unbelievable. He's actually one of the 10 oldest men in the United States, as it turns out. But nevertheless, just shows how history, even when it doesn't always cross over 
and doesn't always stay crossed over between lives at various points can always intersect back not only with one another but with successive generations. And that's one of the things I love about it so much and why always in the end, truth will always seemingly be stranger than fiction. Okay, well, normally I take us into, you know, what's going on with me. I wanted to tell this story in its entirety. I didn't want to rush it. I only have a couple minutes here before I have to start signing off. But uh, just really quickly on, on what's going on with me. How am I doing? You know, I'm good. I, I, as you all know, I have been working on getting my book published for quite some time. And, and I do a lot of different things to help make that happen. Part of doing this podcast is to help build audience. Uh, my website, which is getting revamped, is meant to kind of put myself forward and all the different things that I do put forward, all the things I do on social media, the work I do as a certified human potential coach, and my work with Tawny Santabria on the Breaking Up With Our BS podcast. All of this channeling in a certain direction that I want to go. But there are times where I sometimes feel, as I was talking to a friend about this just recently, where I don't know the difference between am I throwing something against the wall to see what will stick or am I making my own luck by doing all these things and putting myself out there? I don't always know the answer to that, right? And maybe they are part and, part of the, part and parcel of the same thing. But there are times where I feel like I don't have as cohesive a plan to go forward. And I mentioned a few weeks on this, ago on this show, sometimes I can get frozen up. By, I want to make the right choice right now. And... So what I started, what I've started thinking about with the help of, of a lot of conversations, some recent ones in particular, that the more I can put out, the more I just put stuff out there, the better chance I give myself of having someone grab onto this. And I was reminded of a documentary that came out a handful of years ago called Finding Joe. And it's a reflection on Joseph Campbell, right? man of 10,000 faces, the author, the great thinker on, and he's one of the, talks about the hero's journey, that type of thing and on his influence. And in this documentary, there's a screenwriter who talked about when he, the reason why one of his, his movies got made and won a whole series of awards was because he sent out 300 of them to potential uh, movie houses, uh, to um, movie companies, film studios. And he said, that was gonna make a lot more luck for me than if I just sent out three. And so I've been thinking about that going, all right, what do I need to do to flood the zone here to get word of my book out there? And so I've started coming together, come, coming up with some plans and some things I'm going to be doing going forward to really push this thing out there. Rather than just kind of figure out what's the best option, I'm going to take a whole bunch of different directions and see what happens. Is it throwing something against the wall and hoping it'll stick? Maybe. Is it making my own luck? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I don't know. But right now that's where I am at on that. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode of this show is all about you and the stories, the intertwined stories of Ed Saylor and Moon Chin with myself kind of scooting in there at the end. Thanks so much for joining me again. Remember, if you missed any of this episode or any other episodes of this show is all about you, you can find this as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts, right? This show is all about you is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thanks, Eric. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Please check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week goes to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce and Cindy Bullard, Dean Cameron, Isabel Gallegos, Kathy Lewis, Ann Foster, Phil McCoy, Ashley Kniebel, Stacey Heller, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. And to you listeners in particular, thank you. I could not do this for you 
without you. And to send you off in the rest of the week, let's end with this original haiku. Lives lived alongside one another bring out our shared ways of being. Chins up, everyone.